everybody, this is Joel Hoekstra from White Snake, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection, where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. This is episode number 109. I'm your host, Michael Citro, and I'm very thrilled to have Joel Hoekstra as my guest. Joel is the guitar player from Whitesnake, from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Revolution Saints. The guy has played with absolutely the best of the best. He's toured with Cher. He's been a member of Night Ranger. He's been on Broadway as the guitar player for Rock of Ages. He even made a cameo in the movie. We talk about all of that with Joel, and I can't wait to bring that to you, along with some conversation about Joel Hoekstra's 13's new album called Crash of Life. Joel Hoekstra's 13 is basically his solo project, and he's got his third album coming out June 16th. It's fantastic. Can't wait to tell you a little bit more about that. Oh, and also all of the music that you'll hear in this episode comes from the album Crash of Life. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to remind you to visit michaelsrecordcollection.com and there you will find links to everything. You'll find links to my social media accounts, including my Twitter, which is at Mike's Records, and it's Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. You'll also find a link there to sign up for my free e-newsletter. comes to your mailbox every week. It's a little bit different than this podcast, a little bit different take on my interviews and my topics. So hopefully you'll sign up for that. And of course, there's a link there to my Patreon where you can find out how to support this show for as little as $2 per month. I'd also like to invite you to write to me at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. All right, with all that out of the way, let's get to that interview with Joel Hoekstra. Here we go. Hello again, everybody. I am very excited and honored to be joined by Joel Hoekstra from White Snake, from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, from Revolution Saints, from so many bands. This guy knows everybody. Joel, thanks for your time tonight. Hey, right back at you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you what I always ask my guests, and that is what was your first favorite record? Uh, ACDC Back in Black. Yeah. Okay. Cassette, cassette for me cassette i was a cassette kid you know <laughs> sure sure i think um a lot of us were a lot of some of us started with eight tracks and moved into cassettes but that's that's just uh the older ones of us now i know you came from a musical family uh you learned cello and piano uh do you remember how you were first introduced to music or was it just always there it was always there i mean the, my parents were you know on it every day so um, I grew up around music, and they had me going very early on cello and piano. And uh, really, at that age, I was just kind of interested in playing sports. I wanted to be a baseball pitcher. That was kind of my initial, when I was a kid, what I my dream was. And then somewhere around age 11, I think that kind of shifted for me. It's just seeing and hearing ACDC and seeing Angus Young. And I just said, that that's what I want to do right there. That guy's the coolest person I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah. Did you get your own little British schoolboy outfit? <laughs> I didn't go that far. And I also grew quite a bit taller, I think, than I ever imagined. Um, so I, I wouldn't fit in in that band. But, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, 
as it turns out, you know, uh, that's a pretty decent idol. He stood the test of time. He's still around right now. So that's, I, I'm sure he is, his presence and his playing resonated with many people. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, you've grown up and, and you're a professional musician, your guitar playing and Angus's, you don't have the, anywhere close to the same tone. You play different style, you know, stylistically. Um, who are some of the other guitarists that kind of helped shape what you've become? Yeah, early going, it was very like heavy metal based, like that ACDC, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, um, Iron Maiden, Scorpions. Those are kind of the early favorites. Um, and then that kind of evolved in different directions. You know, I'd say like getting into some of the more stereotypical 80s bands uh, like Dokken was big for me. Um, Queensryche. I was introduced to Queensryche on like the EP. Someone had given that to me and like um, still in, I think, seventh or eighth grade. And so I followed them kind of all the way through Empire and then I kind of lost. But, you know, I, I really obsessed on them um a lot and um i'd say rush for me probably number one of all time you know once i stopped obsessing so much on heavy metal and kind of more on like the skill of the band and everything like that rush really resonated with me um the yes in particular the trevor rabin stuff uh that's like the progressive side and then you know classic bands Classic rock was really big in Chicago where I grew up. You know, there was a couple great stations, The Loop, and we had, uh, well, WMET, and we had another one that I forget that played, you know, older stuff. It was like, you know, 60s uh, stuff and so in uh, 70s. So I, I always kind of cite like my favorites from that be like Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and, like The Doors. That kind of stuff was all in there. And then all those guitar records, you know, I grew up in the guitar record era where you know Ingve came out with Rising Force and every that changed the game and I would say um, you know throw in there the Satriani and Steve Vai and Steve Morse was a good one for um, you know all the different styles you know Steve had those uh, records like High Tension Wires that were kind of like acoustic driven or like there would be like kind of a countryish track on you know I had Steve Morse band the introduction. And uh, I wore that one out. Um, so all that stuff then kind of coupled with, I mean, there's a lot. For me to name everything would take a really long time. But I would say all that stuff kind of mash it all together and you get an idea. But you notice like with me, when I name it, I name like the bands. Like When we go back to the heavy metal era, I wasn't even talking about Randy Rhodes. I was talking about Ozzy. You know, I liked the Ozzy cassette. This is before I really was cared about like, you know, oh, Randy Rhodes solo on that. You know, I was like, it was more about the Ozzy album. The Blizzard of Oz yeah. was, you know, cool. And and Black Sabbath, it was about the songs. It wasn't about like Tony Iommi for me. It was, so I cared more about like the bands themselves and the the uh, individual players. Sure. Okay. Um, now we're here to talk about Joel Hoekstra's 13. You got a new album coming out June 16th called Crash of Life on frontiers music before we dive into sort of some of the album specifics there are multiple artists and if you go to joel's webpage and look at all the people he's worked with 
it would take the rest of the time we have to list all of the legends that this guy has has performed with or recorded with. But there's a few that I have um, just sort of wanted to get some background on. And the first of those is Night Ranger, big, big Night Ranger fan. How was it working with Brad Gillis in a band that features that two guitar attack like that? Yeah, cool. I mean, in between Jeff Jeff's departure from the band and my hiring, there was a year with Reb Beach in there where I think, you know, Reb was kind of in there doing the, the super strat thing with the Floyd Rose himself. And I was like, well, the whole thing that was so cool about the Watts and Gillis dynamic was you knew immediately it was Brad Gillis, you know, because you did the whammy. And mm-hmm. uh, even on that Stars recording, I don't know how many you know people out there remember the hearing aid recording of We're Stars, but oh, you yeah. know, the people that really stood out who you could know immediately on there were Ingve and Brad, because Brad was doing something completely different, doing the, all the whammy bar stuff. So, you know, I always looked at that joining Night Ranger like it was really easy to fit in a two guitar team with Brad. You just give him that, you know, and just go like, hey, I'm gonna play a Les Paul, and we don't need to worry about. You know, everybody's going to know who's who immediately. You know, Brad's very identifiable because of that. Um, you know, I always looked at him as kind of a um, uh, a more heavy metal uh, version of what Jeff Beck was doing with the whammy. You know, more of a Brad to me is more of a lyrical player than a shredder chops guy. You know, he gets thrown in that shredder category because I think he, you know, stepped into, you know, the Aussie gig. But to me, you know. Brad's strength has always been all those, you know, his solos sing, you know, you, you listen yeah. to that sister Christian solo and it sings, you know, like, so his signature stuff, I, I, I think it was really easy to be in a two guitar team with him. Cause he's got a really strong identity. So you were there from 2008 to 2014. How did you first get in night Ranger? How did that, uh, how did the introductions take yeah. place? Where, how did that work? Well, I'd been working in, the house band for Jim Peterick uh, for his world stage band in the Chicago area for years where people would come in and sing their hits. And Kelly Kagey, uh, their Night Rangers drummer, was a part of that every year. So I'd see him like once a year for maybe we had known each other for seven years before I even had the opportunity to play with Night Ranger. Um, and Reb needed to miss a gig. I think it was probably because Winger had a show. And so I think they were looking at like, hey, we either cancel this date or what do we do? Play one guitar. And Kelly said, no, I know this guy that plays with Jim Peterick that this guy gets off a plane and he knows like a whole set. You don't have to rehearse him. He plays the show down. Um, he does Jeff's eight finger thing. And so that kind of became um, my opportunity. So it was really a gig where I I just, you know, we met in baggage claim, you know, I was like, hi, how you doing? We're, we're playing tomorrow night together. Um, so I did a gig with him and that went well and that kind of eventually led to playing with the band full time. It's 
2018 to 2020, you went on tour with Cher for the Here We Go Again tour. How does how does Joel Hoekstra become uh, Cher's guitarist? Well, that was really, um, I would say, more 2017 through 19. Um, David Coverdale was having knee replacement surgery done in 2017. So I didn't really need a new gig per se because, you know, Whitesnake was still functional. We we're just going to, you know, David was just going to not tour that year. So I just reached out to all my friends in the business and like, hey, if anybody needs a fill in type of thing, you know, I don't really need a new gig. And um, just so happened, my friend Justin Derrico is one of those people. He plays with Pink. People know him from there on the TV show The Voice. And the other guitarist on The Voice, Dave Barry, was Cher's longtime guitarist. And he was kind of angsting, going, man, I need to find a sub for Cher because I'm going to be missing a lot of dates. The Voice was really getting busy. And uh, Justin said, I know this is kind of, kind of a weird suggestion out of left field, but how about, you know, Joel Hoekstra from Whitesnake because he's played a lot of different styles of music, too. And can, you know, probably uh, be able to cop all the styles. And so um, it started out as like just kind of going in for a few shows and that really kind of turned into a few years, um, just kind of out of the blue, you know, it's like life is weird that way. And so uh, that, yeah, ended up being something that I was just going to hop in for a little tiny bit and ended up being kind of long. One of the things you're very well known for is being in Trans-Siberian Orchestra Again, how how did you come to to join that band and and you know do some of the great things that those guys do? Especially, of course, we all know the Christmas time stuff. That's the time to go and, and see Trans Siberian Orchestra. What interested you about the gig and and how did you get it? Um, that was really Alex Skolnick needing to take a year off um, to tour with his jazz trio. And uh, I had a couple friends in the band throw my name in and say, this is your guy. So I auditioned with Al Petrelli, the music director, first. And that went well. And then um, I ended up having an audition with Paul O'Neill, um, the founder and owner and, and uh, the late, great Paul O'Neill. And that went well. And I got offered the gig. Um, <clears throat> so I really wasn't quite sure at that time. Is this like one year filling in for Alex? That had happened previously, I think in like 2003, he had taken a year off, I want to say it was. And so I thought maybe this will just be one year, uh, but it ended up kind of sticking. And, um, you know, now I'm going on like 13 years of being a part of TSO. I mean, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of great things about TSO to ask me about the gig, but yeah, just a great pool of talent in Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And um, obviously the production is amazing. You know, the the light show and lasers and pyro and just to be a part of that spectacle. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that any musician would be really lucky to have the opportunity. Well, that brings me to Whitesnake. Uh, White, it seems like you've played in and listened to bands that, were influential to white snake that people from white snake might've even been in it at times. Um, so it seems like a natural fit, but you know, what was the first phone call? What was the first contact with white snake? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, once again, a situation where Doug was stepping away. So, um, just trying to get an audition. I was really, you know, bird. I was like right on that, trying to, um, get myself an audition. I, I think, you know, it, 
initially I gave some video links of, you know, me playing with Night Ranger and me on that metal show to Reb to pass on to David because Reb and I had known each other from that Night Ranger experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first I didn't hear anything back. And then I just kind of went further into my brain, like, come on, who could get me an audition? And Phil Carson, who manages Foreigner, came to mind because I'd filled in for Mick Jones. Um, and Phil also managed Dee Snyder. He was around Rock of Ages a lot because Dee was a part of the show for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Phil was nice enough to write David and get me an audition. You walked in and said with a grin Nothing could ever change your mind Possible scenes and digital dreams That live through So you're in Rock of Ages as a Broadway guitarist. That's probably something you never imagined yourself doing. Absolutely. That, the, that along with Cher are totally out of left field. When I was an <laughs> 11-year-old kid playing Tony Iommi riffs, I wasn't thinking about, you know, someday I'm going to be on Broadway or someday I'm going to play with Cher. So I'm definitely out of left field, but my I had moved to New York to do rock theater. I was doing a show about Janis Joplin called Love Janis. And then that director took me on the road with that uh, to regional theaters. And then he had another production called It Ain't Nothing But The Blues. That was a traditional blues show that I went on the road with um, and did that. And um, then I started to sub for my friend in the pits. And so I would learn like, you know, the books, the sheet music and and it was really through doing that, oddly enough, that led me to Rock of Ages because I had subbed for him on whatever show he was doing. At that time, I would learn the book. And what, as it turns out, the keyboard player on the last show I did with him, uh, subbed for him, it was called Tarzan that Phil Collins wrote the music for. Mm-hmm. And um, the keyboard player from that gig got the music supervisor role for Rock of Ages and remembered, hey, I remember there being this rock guy Um at Tarzan and like, maybe let's get in touch with him. And when he did, I had joined Night Ranger and he said, well, this is going to be amazing because Sister Christian is in this show and it's an 80s rock show. And so it was just this beautiful, I guess, kind of uh, coincidence that occurred, you know, that like I had joined Night Ranger and their song was in the show. So that made those guys happy. And <laughs> I was promoting them on Broadway and they made, you know, making a movie out of it and whatnot and all that excitement. So yeah, and you got to have a cameo in the movie. What was that like for you? Um, I mean, I was a big fan of the movie. I think that kind of ruined that the show was a lot more fun and a lot cooler. But like, mm-hmm. it was, life experience wise, it was great because that three days we shot in Miami, I basically shared a trailer with Nuno and uh, Sebastian Bach and Kevin Cronin from REO. 
And Debbie Gibson was a part of our pack as well, but she had her own trailer, obviously, um, or, you know, was with uh, females. But, you know, palling around with them for three days, you know, um, that was a great life experience. Lots of fun. Got some great stories out of it. And so, yeah. All right. So we're here to talk about Crash of Life. Uh, tell me about Joel Hoekstra's 13. When you started this project, you you had done some solo albums before, you know, instrumental stuff and that kind of thing. Did you already have in mind what kind of music you wanted to do or did that kind of come later? Kind of based on the personnel. I mean, the idea of doing a, a rock record was because my instrumental albums were kind of before things took off for me in the, the 80s resurgence. So I was kind of making like, I guess what you call rock fusion instrumental albums and then an acoustic album that was all instrumental. And so it would almost you describe as easy listening, you know. And then um, when everything started to take off, joining Night Ranger, having Rock of Ages, TSO, Whitesnake, you know, all the fans were like, you know, they'd research the solo albums. They'd go, what, what gives? You know, like, how come you don't have any rock records out? And I was like, I guess now's the time for me to start doing that because I'd always wanted to, you know, be like, hey, someday I'll make my my rock records too. Um, so, uh you know, I gave it a project name because I, I I wanted it to sound like a band more than like a guitar album. It didn't really interest me to do like the let me just have a throwaway song with a fancy guitar solo or a three minute guitar solo in the middle. I wanted albums that were about the songs and the stuff that got me into that style of music. As I said, that's really what what I was more about when I when I was drawn into this music. I wasn't drawn into you know, the 80s hard rock, you know, just because of the guitar solo is the song, you know. So mm-hmm. um, the hitch being on this is that I do all the writing. So I write the lyrics and the vocal melodies and everything and get the final. So on the mix and the artwork, et cetera. So you can't really call it. And, you know, they, the guys um, get to play whatever they want on it um, in terms of their, you know, the way they interpret things. But um, you know, if you're going to call it a band, you got to write with people. And I just, I kind of wanted one opportunity to just have it be my stuff. And that's what these albums are, you know, it's my opportunity to do all the writing and, and kind of be the boss for a second. Not that, you know, I'm cool with not being the boss too. Trust me, it's a lot of, it's a lot more work to make the Joel Hoosier's 13 albums than um, the other projects that I'm a part of or bands. Yeah. Now you, uh, 
And one of those bands is Revolution Saints. I talked to Dean Castronovo just a few weeks ago. You just had that album come out. So it's been a busy year for you uh, in terms of releases. This is the the third uh, Joel Hoekstra thir- 13 album scheduled to drop June 16th. That's, that's only one day shy of a full year since your album with Iconic came out last year. Oh, okay. All right, right on. Yeah, so Iconic, well, Revolution Saints is something that yeah, Eagle Light came out April 21st. So those that want to check that out, that's, you know, something that honored to be asked to join in with Dean Castronovo and Jeff Pilsen um, to continue on that brand that obviously Doug Aldrich and Jack Blades had started and they just kind of felt it was time for them to step away once again. So um, getting asked to do that, I just want to make sure everything was cool and that, you know, uh, with Doug and all that stuff, Doug and I actually, you know, have a good relationship. So I just kind of checked in with him and said, Hey, what's up? Are you really stepping aside? You don't want to do this. And he said, no, I actually recommended them. They gave you to continue it if they want to keep it going so so all right well that solves that problem and uh so at that point in time it comes down to like you're a guitarist and you get an opportunity to work with dean castronovo and jeff pilson the answer is yes you know now iconic was interesting because that was something where uh, michael sweet and i had been talking for a long time about doing a record together and um nathan james was a singer that i had um, not only been a part of tso with um, but also had kind of co-written some of the tracks on the Inglorious records. So I think at Frontiers, they, they wanted to put them around Nathan. They said, well, why don't we take this opportunity to put these two ideas together? Let's take Michael Sweet and Joel and let's put them with Nathan. Michael could be more of a guitarist and maybe sing some lines here and there, um, uh, but maybe be more primarily a guitarist in this thing. Um, and they kind of said, and, you know, when I signed the deal, it was like, and then we'll worry about the drummer and bass player later. And and then much to my surprise later on, that turned out to be Tommy Aldridge and Marco Mendoza. Cause I went, oh. so I get it. Now we're throwing this huge white snake vibe at it. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's a cool project. That one's very collaborative in the way we go about the writing. You know, I write the guitar riffs unarranged for Michael. And then this is how he works with George Lynch as well. Um, on their records and then Michael arranges them and adds or subtracts as needed and then that goes out that rebut like goes to you know Nathan and Alessandro Del Vecchio to write the uh, lyrics and vocal melodies Mm -hmm. Um, so you kind of got about four people doing the writing on that Um, it's you know it's always to me it's fun to have those collaborative efforts too and get different results and you hear like hey maybe if i had i was hearing it this happening this way but it's also cool to go with the energy of other people and their i guess their visions and you know be open-minded to it and see what you get you know hence chemistry right yeah you like you you fall back on whether or not there's like musical chemistry there yeah one of the great things about frontiers is that if there's a musician that I like that gets involved with something from Frontiers, then I could probably count on them being on a bunch of more albums on Frontiers from that point on. It just kind of seems like a big brotherhood. Yeah, I mean, for as much flack as they take, you know, that I I shudder to think like what the scene would be like without them. You know, um, I mean, they really are responsible for keeping a lot of the the you know this genre of music alive and out mm. there. And giving us all a platform. So, 
I, you know, I'm very grateful to Serafino and Mario, and I've been working with them since the first Night Ranger record that I recorded, you know, somewhere in California. So we've been working together 12 years or something now. So, you know, we got a good rapport, and I think that's part of them asking me to be a part of Revolution Saints and Iconic. And um, and we're really with Joel Hooksher's 13 kind of giving me artistic freedom and just going, look, we know you're going to give us something good. Just do your thing, man, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so that's that's really how they approached Crad this new one, Crash of Life. They were very just like, hey, just make a cool album, man. You know, just do your thing, you know. And uh, so I appreciate that. Crash of Life, you you got the same lineup almost for this album. Uh, Vinny Apice uh, on drums, uh, Tony Franklin on bass, Derek Sherinian on keyboards, and Jeff Scott Soto doing some backing vocals. But you have a new lead vocalist for this album. It's not Russell Allen this time out. It's uh, Girish Pradhan. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name somewhat correctly from from Girish and the Chronicles, uh, a, a great up and coming band in their own right. How did that happen? Did did Russell uh, have other projects he was too busy, or did he just need to step away? Or, uh, but how did you go from Russell to uh, Girish? Yeah, you know, just like Russell's schedule and how long it takes him to complete records. So running games was like a serious weight um, in terms of actually getting vocal tracks from him. Um, And that and with Russ, if he's not um, like a part of a band, he doesn't really want to do like videos and support the record and things like that. So um, he wants to be a part of like the writing and have it be a band if he's going to put his like stamp on in terms of doing videos. So, um, you know, in discussing all this with frontiers and like what to do, they kind of, you know, sent me a video of Girish and his band. And I thought, well, he's obviously great, but his, you know, I would liken his style on that stuff to, you know, a little bit more of like early skid row, lots of high screaming. And I thought that's cool. Uh, the sound of this stuff has been a little bit more like Ronnie James Dio on the heavy side, Lou Graham, Paul Rogers on the mellower side. So like, you know, let me send him stuff and see how he does. And as it turns out, you know, he's really, really versatile and a real chameleon. And he really did an amazing job on the album. Some of the best vocal performances are ones where he's never utilizing the high scream or anything like that. And he just sang amazingly. Um, so he's very, very talented and, and um, you know, very happy to have him on board. One of the things I noticed when I was listening to Running Games and the new one, sort of A B, uh, to see what you know stylistically had changed. His his style is not 
too dissimilar to where it would be jarring to to play one song and then the uh you know one song from one album and then the one from the new album yeah i mean i'd say that the range is a bit higher with gearish russ is that you know real full almost he's almost more of a baritone these days you know russ has never really been a high screamer etc you know um he just got it has a killer tone and great feel you know and um yeah so i had written thinking okay gearish is singing so some of the melodies go to higher notes than russ would sing so some of the range of like what the vocal melodies are changes um but in general, I mean, I'm kind of spoiled because you're talking about two world-class singers here. I mean, anytime we're comparing guys like this, we're comparing like really the best rock singers that there are out there. And so you know, it's no disrespect to anybody. And, and it's apples and oranges. It's up to the fans what they prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Gearish is definitely world-class and, uh, and so is Russ. So you know, as long as the album quality is there for me um, and and it fits in the vein of the style, I didn't want to have a total departure and have the round completely different um, than than running games. Um, I think, you know, having that core lineup intact with Vinny and Tony and Derek Sherinian and Jeff Scott Soto doing the backing vocals, which is an amazing favor that he, he does for me, you know, um, he wouldn't do that for just anyone. I think we just have a good friendship and, you know, um, he lends his hand on that. So uh, that gives the record a sound having somebody like Jeff just be like, I'll do the backing vocals on your album. I mean, that's a, that's a serious luxury, man, when you got Jeff Scott Soto singing backing vocals. So all of the stuff we're talking about is kind of like really great, very talented people. It's there's never a slight on anybody. It just is, you know, there's, you know, these guys are all great. Yeah. Fantastic. So the new album is, uh, is, is really great. What I wanted to know about your songwriting style is where does a Joel Hoekstra's 13 song start? Do you start with a melody on the guitar? Do you start on, do you write on the piano? Do you start with some, maybe some lyrics? Um, I'd say almost all of these started with riffs, you know, guitar riffs, and um, some of them had been for past writing attempts. Oddly enough, some of it with Russell, because we were talking about starting a band band um, that was going to be like a little more like classic rock, like um, um, Don't Have Words is something that I wrote for Russell. It was kind of like ACDC influence, but with more of a pop chorus to it. Mm-hmm. um pop-ish like kind of melodic rock chorus and um so there's an example or you're right for me is another one that's kind of like open tuning jimmy page kind of vibe for me um in terms of where i was writing that song from but again with a poppier chorus um so uh most of it was guitar but like a song like uh through the night uh, which is like more of like i suppose like almost r&b-ish kind of changes on it um was all the ballads kind of take interesting turns on this album. They're like ballads for a bit and then they're not. It's like Torn Into Lies, which is a single that's up right now. It's like a ballad, but it also kind of breaks off into a jam, you know? Um, So I I would say that Through the Night was one that was melody first, me singing it in my head, um, walking and kind of writing like, you know, and then figuring out what are the changes when I got to my guitar. So it goes, and it may be simple, but we, we were always meant to be. You're the greatest surprise. 
yeah, through the night is uh, I was going to ask you specifically about that because stylistically it's a bit different than the other songs on the album. Yeah, it's kind of got it's kind of got almost like uh, smooth rock changes to it, but then gritted out with distortion and heavied up a bit, you know. So it's kind of an interesting experiment um, yeah. to see if like that works with people or not, you know. But I like that on this record, there a lot of my different influences are present, and it's like I can almost go riff by riff or moment to moment in a solo and tell you like that's where that's where this comes from with me, you know, um, like, you know, far too deep, which was the first single that's up. Um, you know, the, uh, the opening riff is almost dead. George Lynch influenced kind of doc and influenced then the verse riff, which is, you know, almost like Megadeth symphony for destruction kind of influence. And then the chorus for me, the guitar riff itself came almost from like Sabbath, bloody Sabbath kind of having, um, this D minor pod, like two note power chord kind of riff. And, um, so uh, the pre-chorus is definitely like Soundgarden influence. It's like a nineties riff. It's a drop D, you know, kind of working with the parallel power chords like this when you're drop D tuned on guitar. So, um, you know, I can pick apart all these different songs and kind of break down for you where the influences come from. Um, but it's fun for me to have the record reflect a lot of that rather than have 11 or 12 songs that sound the same. That's not as fun for me, uh, especially when, the, you know, these albums are made as artistic expression for me. So I like to have, you know, not to use the the key word of nowadays, but a lot of diversity on it. You know, it's like to have... Um, different styles represented is is fun for me and then when you take the same musicians performing in the same tones and using essentially the same guitar the whole time a less paul you know the stuff it gives it some glue and it makes it sound like the stuff belongs together not like oh this is just totally all the place you know mm -hmm. so um it finds a happy mid-round with that speaking of uh your artistic vision for this lyrically when you write a song do you start do you write your demo and then do scat lyrics and then figure out what you want to say later? Do you come in with an idea in your head that you want to say something that you really want to get off your chest? What is your approach to lyrics? Lyrics and vocal melodies kind of happen simultaneously and they happen in a segment. Usually where even if something has a certain section and I'll say, well, I know what that one's going to be already, but I'll usually designate, all right, now it's time to sit down and write the lyrics. And then I actually track a guide vocal through the whole record for the singer where I sing the whole album and then they just can reference that and sing it a whole lot better than I do. Um, or sometimes put their own twist on it. Russell did a lot more of like doing his own thing with it. Gearish followed a lot of what I did on the guide um, in terms of what the actual melody or the ideas were like riff wise. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's a lot more work. Like I got to write all the lyrics and then sing the whole album, just have it essentially erased eventually, you know? Um, so I put in a lot of work on these records for sure. They're much more difficult to make than the other projects we're speaking about. Mm -hmm. Now, the second single that came out was uh, Torn Into Lies. That's one of those uh, partial ballads that kind of... Uh, yeah, if you're something. Yeah.
When you work with Frontiers, do they select the singles that they want? Do they get your input? How does how does that work? Well, I think on the first two albums, there were kind of the poppy ones that stood out, you know. So it was like on Dying to Live, there was Until I Left You, and everybody was like, Well, that's the single, you know. And and I it was like, okay, yes, but let's pick out some heavier ones too, so people don't think it's all just kind of, you know, melodic, super melodic, because that song was not very heavy. Um, and that really same with running games are like hard to say goodbye. That stood out as like a melody first song. And this album, I would say is a little bit more, um, less obvious what the, the standalone singles are, but I'd say the overall bar is raised as far as like the songs for me, at least I feel like in these interviews that I've done now, I've literally had every single song cited as a favorite of somebody when they list their favorites off the record. So I've had at one time or another, every single one mentioned, which is either a good sign or a bad sign, because, uh, you know, it just means like nothing's really standing out as like, well, these are the obvious singles. So I think the thought of having far too deep and torn into lies is like, well, let's represent one of the really heavy tracks and let's represent one of the more ballady tracks. And, you know, people can usually most of the stuff falls between those two things. So. Sure. What is your favorite song on this album? I don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. I mean, that's perfectly fine. I know a lot of people, it's like, they're all, they're, they're all my children and I love them equally kind of thing. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> how it is. Yeah, so um, it's a luxury too when you have a world class guitar player that wants to you know put their solos in to have a keyboard player like Derek Sherinian who also can solo with the best of them. And one of the best songs on this album for me is "Not Tonight" because I love that that really strong solo that Derek has that immediately followed by your melodic guitar solo. Um, is that something that you had baked into that? Uh, that demo to begin with, or did Derek uh, have some ideas and, and kind of flesh that out on his own? Yeah, I kind of picked the spots and tell Derek like solo here. And a lot of times he's soloing over like on this record, like sections, like, you know, right before my guitar solo, when it's just the gangs are far too deep, he's actually shredding over that. And I said, that'd be fine. I'd be gang vocals during the keyboard solo, just shred away in there. And, uh, so we just kind of pick where he can take his solos and get his licks in. And um, yeah, that Not Tonight is another interesting one because I think you could take like riff A, um, the setup for that and go, well, that's kind of Zeppelin-y or white snakey, that that kind of bluesy riff with the space. Um, and then that chorus in particular, I would look at as like something that I could almost hear Don Dawkins singing like back in the eighties, you know, like if you listen to the melody of it and go like this almost like has like a Dawkins-ish kind of melody to it. So you hear a lot of my influences kind of poke through in weird spots and you mash those two things together, kind of a Zeppelin slash white snake-ish riff with a Dawkins-ish chorus. And you kind of, you end up with a, a song like that, you know? Yeah. So Joel, when somebody buys this album and they put the CD in, turn it up, listen to it, start to finish, what do you hope that they take away from that experience? 
Oh, I mean, I hope they dig it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, obviously, I hope people like it. Um, uh, I put the stuff out mainly as an artistic statement, like, you know, part of my legacy, if you will, not to be too self-important, but like, you know, it'd be nice to be known as a guy who had more than some cool gigs. Like, oh, yeah, that guy had this gig and this gig and this gig. It's like good to have your own music out and um, yeah, have your own artistic statements out there. So that's really what the the albums are about in the end for me. So. You know, it's not necessarily about like whether or not how popular it is or anything like that. I have no delusions of grandeur of like I'm going to be on the charts or anything like that. But um, as if people, if obviously if they like it, that's great. You know, the more people that like it, the better. But it's not necessarily why they're made either. <laughs> All right. Well, the album comes out June 16th. It's called Crash of Life on Frontiers Music. Uh, you can get it at the Frontier Shop. You can probably get that on Amazon too. You can visit joelhoekstra.com to find out more about Joel and his uh, phenomenal resume. Uh, Joel, it's been fantastic talking to you about this record. I really appreciate it. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. I'm really sorry about our connectivity issues here. Hopefully the editing isn't too painful, brother. I'm really sorry. No worries. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. Where are you today? Um, can't divulge that. <laughs> <laughs>